I originally skipped book five altogether and only provided a summary before book six. But when one of our members said she couldn't get behind this decision, though she's agreed with me in the past, I decided to go back and give it a second look. As is always the case, when I read it out loud, I got a lot more out of it, and so I've decided to provide it to you. So now you have a choice. You can listen to Book 5, Chapter 1 in its entirety, or you can skip ahead and listen to the summary that I provide before Book 6. Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo Book 5, Chapter 1 Abbas Beati Martini Abbot Martin Don Claude's renown had spread far and wide. It procured him, at about the period when he refused to see Madame de Beaujeu, the honor of a visit which he long remembered. It was on a certain evening. He had just retired after divine service to his canonic cell in the convent of Notre Dame. This apartment, aside from a few glass files banished to a corner, and full of somewhat suspicious powder, which looked vastly like gunpowder, contained nothing strange or mysterious. There were inscriptions here and there upon the walls, but they were merely scientific statements, or pious extracts from well-known authors. The archdeacon had just seated himself by the light of a three-beaked copper lamp before a huge chest covered with manuscripts. His elbow rested on a wide-open book by Honorius d'Auton, Di predestinatione et libero arbitrio, predestination and free will, and he was very meditatively turning the leaves of a printed folio which he had brought upstairs with him, the only product of the press which his cell contained. In the midst of his reverie there was a knock at the door. "'Who is there?' cried the sage, in the gracious tone of a hungry dog disturbed while eating his bone." A voice answered from without. Your friend, Jacques Quatier. He at once opened the door. It was indeed the king's physician, a person of some fifty years of age, whose harsh expression was only corrected by a crafty look. Another man was with him. Both wore long, slate-colored robes, furred with miniver, belted and clasped, with caps of the same stuff and color. Their hands were hidden in their sleeves, their feet under their gowns, their eyes beneath their bonnets. "'God help me, gentlemen,' said the archdeacon, showing them in. "'I did not expect so honorable a visit at such an hour.' And while speaking in this courteous fashion, he cast an anxious and searching glance from the physician to his companion. It is never too late to visit so distinguished a scholar as Don Claude Frollo de Tirchap, replied Dr. Quatier, who, being a native of Franche-Comte, drawled all his sentences until they dragged as majestically as the long train of a lady's dress. Then began between the doctor and the archdeacon one of those congratulatory prefaces with which it was at this period customary to precede every conversation between learned men, and which did not hinder them from hating each other most cordially. However, it is just so today. The lips of every learned man who compliments another scholar are like a cup of honeyed poison. 
Claude Frollo's congratulations to Jacques Quatier dwelt particularly on the numerous worldly advantages which that worthy physician, in the course of his much-envied career, had contrived to extract from every royal malady. The result of a better and surer alchemy than the search for the philosopher's stone. Truly, Dr. Quatier, I was delighted to hear of the bishopric of your nephew, my reverend Lord Pierre Versailles. Has he not been made Bishop of Amiens? Yes, Archdeacon, by the favor and mercy of God. Do you know that you cut a very fine figure on Christmas Day at the head of your associates of the Court of Exchequer, Mr. President? Vice President, Don Claude. Nothing more, alas. How is your superb house in the Rue Saint-André-des-Arcs getting on? It's another Louvre. I particularly admire the apricot tree carved over the door, and the pleasing pun put in the motto, A l'abri cotier. Alas, Master Claude, all that stonework costs me dear. I am being ruined as fast as the house grows. Pooh! Haven't you your revenues from the jail and the palace bailiwick, and the rent of all the houses, butchers' stalls, booths, and shops within the boundary wall? That's a fine milk cow for you. My Poissy Castellani brought me in nothing this year. But your toll-gates at Triel, Saint-James, and Saint-Germain-en-Laye are still good. A hundred and twenty pounds, and not even Paris pounds at that. But you have your place as counselor to the king. That's a permanent thing. Yes, Brother Claude, but that confounded manner of Poligny, which people make such a talk about, doesn't bring me in sixty crowns, take it one year with another. In the compliments paid to Jacques Quatier by Don Claude, there was the sarcastic, sour, slightly mocking tone, the cruel, acid smile of an unfortunate and superior person sporting for a moment, by way of amusement, with the fat prosperity of a vulgar fellow. The other did not observe this. "'By my soul,' said Claude at last, pressing his hand, "'I am glad to see you in such robust health.' "'Thank you, Master Claude.' "'By the way,' cried Don Claude, "'how goes it with your royal patient?' "'He does not pay his doctor enough,' answered the physician, "'casting a side glance at his comrade. "'Do you think so, friend Quatier?' said his comrade. These words, uttered in tones of surprise and reproach, drew the archdeacon's attention to the stranger, although, to tell the truth, he had not been wholly unobservant of him for a single instant since he had crossed the threshold. Had there not been a thousand reasons for his conciliating Dr. Jacques Quatier, the all-powerful physician of King Louis XI, he would never have admitted him in such company." Therefore, his mien was anything but cordial when Jacques Quatier said, "'By the way, Don Claude, I bring you a brother worker, who was anxious to see you, being familiar with your fame.' "'A gentleman of science?' inquired the archdeacon, fixing his piercing eye upon Quatier's companion. The stranger returned his gaze with an equally searching and defiant look." As well as the feeble light of the lamp allowed one to judge, he was an elderly man of some sixty years, and of medium height, apparently quite ill and broken. His profile, although not at all aristocratic, 
was still strong and severe. His eye flashed from beneath a very prominent brow, like a light from the depths of a cave. And under the flat cap which drooped over his face, the broad forehead of a man of genius was visible. He took upon himself to answer the archdeacon's question. "'Reverend sir,' he said in grave tones, "'your renown has reached me, and I desired to consult you. I am only a poor country gentleman who takes off his shoes before venturing into the presence of learned men. You must know my name. I am Father Tourangeau.' "'An odd name for a gentleman,' thought the archdeacon. Still, he felt that he had before him a strong and serious character." The instinct of his lofty intellect led him to guess that a spirit no less lofty lurked beneath the furred cap of Father Tourangeau, and as he studied his grave face, the ironical smile which the presence of Jacques Quatier had forced to his sullen lips faded slowly, as twilight fades from the sky at night. He reseated himself silently and moodily in his great armchair, his elbow resumed its wonted place upon the table, and his head on his hand. After a few moments of meditation, he signed to the two visitors to be seated, and addressed Father Tourangeau. "'You came to consult me, sir, and upon what branch of science?' "'Your reverence,' replied Father Tourangeau, "'I am ill, very ill. You are said to be a great doctor, and I come to you for medical advice.' "'Medical advice,' said the archdeacon, shaking his head. He seemed communing with himself an instant, then added, "'Father Tourangeau, if that be your name, turn your head. You will find my answer ready written on the wall.' Father Tourangeau obeyed, and read this inscription on the wall above his head. "'Medicine is the daughter of dreams. Jean Bleak.' But Dr. Jacques Quatier listened to his comrade's question with a displeasure only increased by Don Claude's answer. He bent to Father Tourangeau's ear and said, low enough not to be overheard by the archdeacon, I told you he was a madman, but you insisted on seeing him. Because this madman may well be right, Dr. Jacques, replied the stranger in the same tone and with a bitter smile. As you please answered Quatier dryly. Then, turning to the archdeacon, "'You are an apt workman, Don Claude, and you handle Hippocrates as deftly as a monkey does a nut. Medicine a dream, indeed. I doubt me the druggists and the old masters would stone you well, were they here. Then you deny the influence of filters on the blood, of ointments on the flesh?' You deny that everlasting pharmacy of flowers and metals, which we call the world, made expressly for that eternal sufferer whom we call man? I deny, said Don Claude, coldly, neither drugs nor disease. I deny the physician. Then it is false, continued Quatier with warmth, that gout is an inward eruption, that a cannon wound may be cured by the application of a roasted mouse, that young blood properly infused restores youth to old veins? It is false to say that two and two make four, and that emprestodinus follows opistodinus. Those are some kind of spasm, one that makes you contract forward and the other that makes you arch your back.
The archdeacon quietly replied, There are certain things which I regard in a certain way. Quatier turned red with rage. There, there, my good Quatier, don't be angry, said Father Tourangeau. The archdeacon is our friend. Quatier calmed himself, muttering, After all, he's a madman. Odd zooks, Master Claude, continued Father Tourangeau after a pause. You embarrass me mightily. I had two pieces of advice to ask of you, one concerning my health, the other concerning my star. Sir, responded the archdeacon, if that be your object, you would have done as well not to waste your breath in climbing my stairs. I am no believer in medicine. I am no believer in astrology. Indeed, said the stranger with surprise. Quatier laughed a forced laugh. You see now that he's mad, he whispered to Father Tourangeau. He doesn't believe in astrology. How can anyone imagine, continued Don Claude, that every star ray is a thread which leads to some man's head? Pray, in what do you believe, then? exclaimed Father Tourangeau. The archdeacon for an instant seemed uncertain. Then, with a gloomy smile, which seemed to belie his answer, said, Credo in Deum. I believe in God. Dominum nostrum, our Lord, added Father Tourangeau, making the sign of the cross. Amen, said Quatier. Reverend sir, resumed the stranger, I am delighted to find you so good a Christian. But, great scholar that you are, have you reached such a point that you no longer believe in science? No, said the archdeacon, seizing Father Tourangeau by the arm, while a lightning flash of enthusiasm kindled his dull eye. No, I do not deny science. I have not crawled flat on my face all these years, digging the earth with my nails, amid the countless mazes of the cavern, without seeing far before me, at the end of the dark tunnel, a light, a flame, something, doubtless the reflection of the dazzling central laboratory, where sages and patient souls have taken God by surprise. Come, then, interrupted Tourangeau. What do you consider true and certain? Alchemy. Quatier cried out, Good God, Don Claude! Alchemy has its good points, no doubt. But why should you blaspheme against medicine and astrology? Your science of mankind is not. Your science of heaven, not, said the archdeacon, authoritatively. You treat Epidorus and Chaldea very cavalierly, replied the doctor with a sneer. Hear me, Master Jacques. I speak in good faith. I am not the king's physician, and his majesty did not give me the Daedalus garden as a convenient spot whence I might study the constellations. Don't be angry, and listen to me. What new truth did you ever derive? I don't say from medicine, which is far too foolish a matter, but from astrology. Tell me the virtues of the vertical boustrophedon, the discoveries of the number Zeroth and the number Zephyrod. Would you deny, said Quatier, the sympathetic power of the clavicle, and that the Kabbalah is derived from it? An error, Master Jacques. None of your formula lead to reality. 
while alchemy has its indubitable discoveries. Can you contest such results as these? Ice, buried beneath the ground for a thousand years, is transformed to rock crystal. Lead is the progenitor of all the metals, for gold is not a metal, gold is light. Lead requires but four periods of two hundred years each to pass successively from the state of lead to the state of red arsenic, from red arsenic to tin, from tin to silver. Are these facts, or are they not? But to believe in clavicles, planets, and stars is as absurd as to believe with the natives of far Cathay that the golden oriole turns into a mole, and grains of wheat into mollusks of the genus Cypria. I have studied hermetics, cried Quatier, and I affirm— The fiery archdeacon did not permit him to finish his speech. And I have studied medicine, astrology, and hermetics. Here alone is truth. As he spoke, he took from the press a file filled with the powder of which we spoke some pages back. Here alone is light. Hippocrates is a dream. Urania is a dream. Hermes is a mere idea. Gold is the sun. To make gold is to become God. This is the only wisdom. I have sounded the depths of medicine and astrology, I tell you. They are not. Not. The human body is a mere shadow. The stars are shadows. And he fell back upon his seat in a striking and imposing attitude. Father Tourangeau watched him in silence. Quatier forced himself to sneer, shrugged his shoulders slightly, and repeated in a low voice, A madman. And, said Tourangeau suddenly, the splendid goal, have you attained that? Have you made gold? Had I made it, replied the archdeacon, pronouncing his words slowly, like a man who is reflecting, the king of France would be called Claude, and not Louis. The stranger frowned. What do I say, added Don Claude with a scornful smile. What would the throne of France avail me when I could reconstruct the empire of the East? Well, well, said the stranger. Oh, poor fool, muttered Quatier. The archdeacon went on, apparently replying to his own thoughts only. But no, I still crawl. I bruise my face and knees on the sharp stones of the subterranean way. I see dimly. I do not behold the full splendor. I do not read. I spell. And when you can read, asked the stranger, shall you make gold? Who can doubt it, said the archdeacon. In that case, Notre Dame knows that I am in great need of money, and I would fain learn to read your books. Tell me, reverend master, is your science hostile or displeasing to Notre Dame? To this question from the stranger, Don Claude merely answered with a quiet dignity, Whose archdeacon am I? True, my master. Well, will it please you to initiate me? Let me spell with you. Claude assumed the majestic and pontifical attitude of a Samuel. 
old man, it needs more years than still remain to you to undertake the journey through mysterious things. Your head is very gray. None ever leave the cavern without white hairs, but none enter save with dark hair. Science is skilled in furrowing, withering, and wrinkling human faces. It needs not that old age should bring to her faces ready wrinkled. Yet, if you long to submit yourself to discipline at your age, and to decipher the dread alphabet of sages, come to me. It is well. I will try what I can do. I will not bid you, you poor old man, go visit the sepulchres in the pyramids of which ancient Herodotus speaks, nor the brick tower of Babylon, nor the huge white marble sanctuary of the Indian temple of Eklinga. Neither I nor you have seen the Chaldean edifices constructed after the sacred form of Sikra, or the temple of Solomon, which is destroyed, or the stone doors of the tomb of the kings of Israel, which are shattered. We will be content with the fragments of the book of Hermes, which we have at hand. I will explain to you the statue of St. Christopher, the symbolism of the sower, and that of the two angels at the door of the Saint-Chapelle, one of whom has his hand in a vase, and the other in a cloud. Here, Jacques Quatier, who had been disconcerted by the archdeacon's spirited replies, recovered himself, and interrupted in the triumphant tone of one wise man setting another right, Eras, amici Claudi. You're wrong, friend. The symbol is not the number. You take Orpheus for Hermes. It is you who err, gravely answered the archdeacon. Daedalus is the basement. Orpheus is the wall. Hermes is the building itself, is the whole. Come when you will, he added, turning to Tourangeau. I will show you the particles of gold remaining in the bottom of Nicholas Flamel's crucible, and you may compare them with the gold of Guillaume de Paris. I will teach you the secret virtues of the Greek word peristera. But first of all, you must read in turn the marble letters of the alphabet, the granite pages of the book. We will go from the porch of Bishop Guillaume and of Saint-Jean-le-Ronde to the Saint-Chapelle, then to the house of Nicolas Flamel in the Rue Marivaux, to his tomb, which is in the cemetery of the Holy Innocents, to his two almshouses in the Rue Montmorency. You shall read the hieroglyphics which cover the four great iron andirons in the porch of the Saint-Gervais Hospital, and those in the Rue de la Foronnerie. We will spell over together once more the façades of the Saint-Combe, Saint-Jean-Vieve-des-Ardents, Saint-Martin, Saint-Jacques de la Boucherie. For some time Tourangeau, intelligent though his appearance was, had seemed as if he failed to follow Don Claude. He now interrupted him with the words, Odd zooks! What sort of books can yours be? Here is one of them, said the archdeacon and opening the window of his cell, he pointed to the vast church of Notre-Dame, which, with its two towers outlined in black against a starry sky, its stone sides and monstrous hip-roof, seemed like some huge double-headed sphinx crouching in the heart of the town. The archdeacon silently gazed at the gigantic edifice, then, with a sigh, stretching his right hand towards the printed book which lay open on the table, 
and his left hand towards Notre Dame, with a melancholy glance from book to church, he said, Alas, the one will kill the other. Quatier, who had eagerly approached the book, could not repress the words, Why, but what is there so terrible about this? Glossa in Epistolis di Pauli, 1474. This is nothing new. It is a book by Pierre Lombard, the master of maxims. Is it because it is printed? That's it, replied Claude, who seemed absorbed in deep meditation, and stood with his forefinger on the folio from the famous presses of Nuremberg. Then he added these mysterious words, Alas, alas, small things overcome great ones. The Nile rat kills the crocodile. The swordfish kills the whale. The book will kill the building. The convent curfew rang just as Dr. Jacques once more whispered in his comrade's ear his perpetual refrain. He is mad. To which his comrade now made answer, I believe he is. No stranger was allowed to linger in the convent at this hour. The two visitors withdrew. "'Master,' said Father Tourangeau, as he took leave of the archdeacon, "'I like scholars and great minds, and I hold you in singular esteem. Come to-morrow to the Palace of the Tournelle, and ask for the abbot of Saint-Martin de Tours.' The archdeacon returned to his cell in amazement." realizing at last who this Father Tourangeau really was, and calling to mind this passage from the cartulary of Saint-Martin de Tours. What follows is a long, long passage in Latin, the gist of which is that the abbot of Saint-Martin de Tours and the king of France are one and the same. It is said that from this time forth the archdeacon held frequent meetings with Louis XI, when his majesty came to Paris and that Don Claude's credit much eclipsed that of Olivier Ledin and Jacques Quatier, the latter of whom, as was his wont, roundly reproached the king on this score. <laughs>